Hi, welcome to Season 2 of the Silverline Podcast, an audio version of our video streams that we hold weekly. They're edited a little bit to make them a little more concise. My name is Roland Mann. I'm the head honcho at Silverline, and we have a great time making fun comics that we think that you'll enjoy. So thank you for listening, and maybe go check out some of our comics if you haven't already. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to Silverline Wednesday Wham. My name is Dean Zachary, and I'm your guide and your host tonight. And I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Daytona Beach Comic Convention. Tonight's subject is a little bit more on the writer side of things. We're going down the writer's rabbit hole, as I like to call it, rather than the usual artistic conversation. Although there'll probably be some art discussed as well. We are going to talk about conflict and character, and we're going to talk about both internal conflict and external conflict. And we're also going to be talking about some of the more popular uh, comic shows right now, particularly in terms of television. Uh, We're going to talk about Loki and we're going to talk about Black Widow and the internal external conflicts of those characters and what we learn from them and how we apply them to our own characters. Let's go ahead and get started here. Aaron, I'm going to let you sort of talk to us about your book, and we're going to bring up a visual for it. Uh, your book is called Godlings. And yeah. Kind of set the stage for us about Godlings before we get into how you created the characters and your inspiration and all that good stuff. So the setting was, there's a, kind of a long history, so the setting is basically, it's a, I think a sci-fi fantasy. It's about these three teenage godlings that don't want to be gods. They, they're errant teenagers. They go off and have fun. Uh, and that's not allowed. And so they end up causing kind of a rebellion back in the uh, realm of the gods and end up causing a lot of destruction inadvertently by their actions. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the setting. So part of it, that the, when they're in the realm of the gods, that's more the sci-fi setting. Um, and then when they're on like the planets they make, that's more of a fantasy setting. So I kind of, I like sci-fi and fantasy, so I find a way to mix both. Of course. Uh, course. Um, so yeah, and the gods not based on any sort of, uh, modern religion or whatever. They're completely sci-fi. Um, they're just supposed to, they're just these incredibly advanced beings that decided to make their own universe and go into it. And then they are, and that's what I'm working on now is a discussion that explains why they created the universe and why there's this absolute strict order in the book that nobody can have personal choice and why that is. Mm-hmm. And it's a philosophical bit. So that's what, that's what I'm working on now as far as the end of issue 11. So, okay. So talk just a little bit about when you're, when you were concepting the, the three teenage godlings, um, you know, we all know, from school, you know, conflict makes uh, for an interesting uh, character, right. but not just not just external, like who they're in conflict with or what they're in conflict with, but also internal. So talk a little bit about the uh, characters themselves and the internal and external conflict. Yeah, it's funny. I made, I, I actually, my first iteration of writing the story is back in like high school, out of high school, and it's changed over the years. And in fact... I have written the story before, and I had the book that's over there. I've actually already finished the series once. This is the second time we're doing the series. Okay. Um, so it's so my characters are just basically the idea. Boomer, the original 
my original protagonist, the main protagonist, is the God of Thunder. And I just chose Thunder because he's impulsive. Thunder's impulsive, like a strike of lightning. Um, he's a hothead. And of course, through the course of the story, he learns humility, which is a, a general story arc or character arc of most stories. The person's a hothead. He gains uh, humility as it goes along. Uh, my other character, Doom, who's the god of the warrior spirit, basically the, the god of the warriors or whatever. He's mm-hmm. just more the silent protagonist. I don't do much with him. I should. Um, a lot of people really like him. Uh, Crystal, the other one who is the, the female god, she is the, the opposite of Boomer. So if Boomer's hot-headed and impulsive. She's more calm and decisive. So those two balance each other out. Right. And right. she's kind of an important part of the story as... It goes along. And then there's a an actual princess who is more like a kind of a princess of empathy and stuff. And there's a king and there's lots of other characters. But the three main protagonists are kind of like just this group of gods that just, you know, they want to do their own thing. So Right. Right. Yeah. So their external conflict is really breaking the rules, so to speak, which really right. speaks to the teenage Rebellion mentality. Exactly. So on, you know, right? don't smoke. Teenager's going to go smoke. You right, know. right. Don't, don't put thing. your hand on the stove. Teenager's yeah, going to bring, you know, the stove, big dick. Right. Yeah. Right. So that. that's your external. Do any of them, say, have maybe regrets or second thoughts about what they're doing? Yes. Crystal's the one that questions a little bit. She's the one that's the most unsure about what they're doing. And I think she's a little naive. She thinks, oh, we're just going to have some fun and then it'll be over. And she didn't realize um, they end up, and this is not too big of a reveal. They end up through the course of it getting in trouble enough that they kill almost an entire city. They decimate like thousands of people and kill thousands of people. And uh, Boomer is one of the only ones to survive. And so the last part of the story is him dealing with the consequences of, because I mean, if you, you know, I wanted to use the idea of the sort of the gray area where like everybody wants freedom, everybody wants to be free. Sure. But what if there's a consequence that's so outrageous and so horrible that you start to question that? Uh, He got it. He got it by literally decimating where he was coming from. Um, And then the last is his kind of coming to terms with what he has done. And there's more other secrets or whatever to do it, but it's almost that rebellious streak And there. And I wanted to actually write into the story. There's a good reason why there's not choice. There's not choice in the realm of the gods because they are dictators or something. That's not why it is. And you read through it, you'll find out that there is a good reason, but it's not the start to see personal flaws in the other. You can have to read it. It's kind of a personal choice. Um, but basically, it just, the, the, really quickly, the gods run the universe in a system of perfect order. The mm-hmm. idea that if entropy or chaos, you know, most things in science, everything goes from order to disorder. Right. So the best way to keep the universe living as long as possible, the creation, is to keep everything in order, to take care of it in perfect order. And it'll survive longer. So choice is a way of introducing disorder into an orderly system. In other words, so every god is born is born to do a specific role. So kind of like the idea of a computer. If all of a sudden you had, um, like, a say your motherboard decided it wanted to be a fan, then your computer would just shut down. Everything has to do its part to make the computer the whole. Same thing in this. Every god has to do their part to make the universe run the way it is. So if somebody decides not to do this, it just is like the systemic like 
illness that runs through it. And so, of course, nobody in the story can have choice because it's like a virus. Once somebody gets choice, it starts spreading almost like free will wanting to do this. But they're doing it to in order to keep things alive and keep things going. So it's not because they're mean. It's an all Yes. So, so there's really three steps, if I'm understanding correctly. The first step mm-hmm. is um, free will puts mm-hmm. the balance in danger. Um, and then, but it's not, it's, the answer is not collectivism. It's not a robotic adherence to a set of rules right. at, at the loss of your individuality. It's more, you can have free will up to the point of an accountability mechanism, right? So yes. the accountability mechanism in your case is keeping the universe going as long as possible before entropy and chaos consume it. Right. They basically, and this is not to take giveaway in that anybody, that's, they basically, the gods, their universe was dying. Yeah. And this is the advanced realm that figured out that the universe is collapsing. There's two ways the universe ideas, multiple, two big ones, the big collapse or the big freeze for our modern universe. I took a, a, a variation on the, on the collapse, mm-hmm. which is basically means that the universe is expanding, eventually get to a point where it cannot hold its form and it just collapse back in. So the universe is actually a pulsating universe. This is a real theory. Um, so I took a variation on that. I didn't go straight yeah. scientific, but I took a variation on that. So these sure. gods are trying to escape. How do you escape that? Mm-hmm. They created another universe, and they mm-hmm. just went inside of it. But to make sure that that fate didn't happen again, the heck, how do we stop it? Well, they realized the universe is going to decay over time. You cannot stop that. But you can really slow it down if everyone does what they're told. And that's why they do it. So it's almost kind of the – so it also goes back to personal choice of like, you know – you can do all of these things in your life to make yourself live as long as possible and not do personal things that you want to do. But if you're not enjoying life, what's the purpose of living a long life? Right. So, so that's, it's about that's a balance. Flip. Right. And mentally, so their character wise, that's what comes into their characters. So my characters are going like, you know, they're arguing. One is like, we need to live as long as possible. And the other ones, like Boomer and stuff, his eternal conflict is like, well, why? If I can't do what I want, what's the point of doing all this in the first place? Right, right. So that's so, the kind of eternal conflict between the two. Yeah. They're yeah. fighting over. Yeah. Total free will versus accountable free will. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. Very heady stuff. Fun. you got such a fun, like, style. And oh, thank you. And all this sort of philosophical heady uh discussion underlying it is really cool I mean, it gives it this this cool foundation you know yeah i tried to actually write it most in my mind or i almost had a major in college in philosophy yeah so, i can tell um so i tried to break it down so young adults can get it because the idea was like this stuff is very interesting i mean when you talk to young kids about philosophy and about those ideas i mean they're fun conversations because nobody knows everybody have your best guess mm-hmm so I don't see that a lot in comics. That's one reason why I wrote this. I didn't see a lot of comics dealing with straight-up philosophical arguments. Not the way. So I'm like, well, could I write one like that? And that's yep. what that's, it It's interesting you say that. Uh, that's uh, that's kind of what I'm addressing with, with Silverblade, and I'll get into that right. uh, a little bit later in the show. But uh, I want to move along now to Barb. And Barb, tell us a little bit about um, we've covered a lot of, of plot dynamics in, in previous uh, episodes or, or uh, streams about your characters, but in this one, I'd really love to hear about the internal conflicts of your three main characters. Like, what what are their what are their struggles internally? Um, yeah, mine's quite not quite as uh, deep as Aaron's. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> uh, mine are 
pretty much ordinary everyday uh, human struggles. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the big things that I wanted to keep in the book was that I wanted this to be a book about ordinary people, just like you run across on the street every day and, and thrown into an extraordinary circumstance um, with, with uh, divinity having the power to heal. Um, divinity's internal struggle obviously is going to be, she's 11 years old. She doesn't understand what's going on around her, you know? Sure. So she's confused. She's angry. Mm -hmm. uh, she's belligerent. Um, she's scared. All the things that an 11-year-old girl would be who suddenly discovers that not only does she have this amazing power, but now all these people are after her. So, oh, excuse me. Um, so she finds herself constantly in emotional flux. And if you have ever, better, ever been around uh, a preteen or a teen, this is pretty much the normal state of affairs right. <laughs> um, with them. So her internal dialogue is all over the place. And her external, of course, is that she's on the run from uh, bad people who want to do bad things to her. Um, she's also in the, in a position where she is under the care of a brother. She really doesn't really know. I mean, they're something like 11 years apart in age. She's 11. He's 26. No, that's more than 11. Oh, 15, right? 15 years apart yeah. in age. So, um, he's almost old enough to be her father. Sure. Uh, so she finds herself confronted with uh, with an older brother who's been gone a good portion of her life uh, her, or her memory of life, because at 11, you don't remember stuff when you're three and four. Uh, and he's been he's been in the Marines since he was 18. So she's having to adapt to another authority figure. And she resents that fact very much that she's got to take orders from a brother she barely knows. And there's all kinds of conflict that's going to raise its ugly head in, in that regard. And the same goes for Zach. He's found himself now in the position of being a parent. He never asked for it. He wanted to be a Marine for a full 20 and beyond. The Marines were his life. And suddenly he's thrown into the, into the role of being a parent. Um, and it, it starts out kind of unlikable. I mean, he's kind of ugly at the beginning because he is very resentful to this little girl um, for pulling him out of his dream and thrusting him into the role of a caretaker. He never asked for it. He doesn't know how to do this job. Um, and some of that resentfulness comes from fear because while he may be a Marine and used to tackling all kinds of heavy duty things, parenthood was not one of them. Especially, right. especially to a belligerent little 11 year old. He has no idea what he's doing. And that comes out as anger a lot, right. uh, which just feeds a fire in this situation. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's, he doesn't know what's, what's going on. He's kind of scared of divinity's powers. Uh, he kind of thinks she's a freak at the beginning and it takes, um, it takes a near loss of her in issue number two for him to realize that he really does care about her and that they start to build a relationship then 
and look upon each other. He doesn't look upon her as his half sister anymore. Through the first and second issue, or part of the second issue, he keeps referring to her as his half sister. And then by the end of the, uh, the second issue, she's just his sister because he has accepted his role in her life. Doesn't mean that things are smooth sailing now by any means, but uh, his internal conflict is learning to adjust to his new circumstances and trying to overcome his, his fear of screwing up. Um, obviously his external is, is again, the bad guys after divinity. And he's also starting to feel very protective towards her. She's a, she's a harmless and helpless little 11 year old or so we think. So we think, yeah. What's fascinating about it too is again, segue perfectly into that a harmless, seemingly harmless little 11 year old. And yet she's very powerful. She's one of the most powerful characters uh, in the story, if not the, as far Mm -hmm. as we know. Um, how does she feel about her powers? She doesn't understand them. I mean, she's fairly new to them, really. All she knows is that she's had a less than a half a dozen instances where she has been able to lay her hands on either an animal or a human and make them better. Um, we see her first real instance where uh, she goes on the defensive Um in issue number two, where she's scared and angry at the same time, and she's holding on to Mr. E, and we later see that he's raised boils all over his hands. And I don't know if she, we don't know if she has realized that she has done that. Um, but this is going to be a whole another issue for her is walking, and she, like again, she's eleven. Um, she was walking this tightrope about what's right and what's wrong. Uh, she could go either way at this point. An 11 year old is impressionable. She could get snotty and, and, um, and angry and say, if you don't do what I want you to do, I can hurt you. Or she can realize that as Peter Parker says, with great powers comes great responsibility. And this is going to be the part where Olivia and Zach come in. Olivia is going to, Olivia's internal conflict is what the hell has she gotten herself into? Um, she has left her job, which was no big hardship for her. She liked, she's, she hated it. She was reduced to being uh, a construction crew, crew uh, worker and was definitely being harassed and being reduced to the role of token female where she knows she's a badass Marine. So this is a much better fit for her lifestyle. But on the other hand, she's got to also run the minefield of taking care of a child. She has no experience on that, but at least she's got a lot more common sense than Zach. So she's going to find herself in the role of uh, providing advice to a little girl and trying to steer this little girl in the right direction. And we couldn't ask for better than a Marine, a female Marine to explain and guide a a young girl through the difficulties of life uh, and and how to stand up for herself and how to be a woman of strength and character. So are they afraid of her at all? Zach 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 is a little bit afraid of her. 
So far, Olivia isn't, but um, okay. that that's a possibility when she sees exactly what what this can do. We're going to see we're going to see some more in issues three and four of what exactly divinity can do. But again, um, when does fear and love clash, and what wins? You yes, know? yes, and, and also again, you've got the responsibility and accountability balance going mm -hmm. with, with divinity herself. And that's a huge weight for an 11 year old to carry and to decipher. Um, so you've so got that. Yeah, it's a heavy burden. Mm -hmm. And it, so. just thinking about that puts me in mind of, of uh, reading accounts of people who have like the parents of serial killers. Mm -hmm. They still mm -hmm. love their children. Oh yeah. You know, and they know that this these pers these people are have done terrible, terrible things, and um, they're actually afraid of them, afraid of their own children. A lot of people are afraid of their own children. Um, are we going to meet um, divinities? Are they they're gone? Are we? They're just in they're just gone? in flash. Oh, that they're, they're dead. Okay, okay. That's okay. how that's how okay. Zach got got uh, a hardship. Discharge from the Marines. Right, but are we going to meet him in, you know, in flashback? Flashbacks? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it was explained early on that they told her not to tell anybody about what she could do to keep it a oh. secret because they were fearful for her, not of her, but for her. And obviously the, it got out anyway and it cost them their lives. Um, well, well, Zach is, is actually kind of thinks she's a freak. Because in the first issue, he goes, what are you? Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. But still, he, he learns to love her. And um, a love is a much more powerful emotion than fear or hate, yes, in, my, I, in my opinion. I, I agree. And I, I think it's, it's really intriguing. And it's also compelling to see that overcome these forces that are all around her, you know, the struggle of the enforced parenthood mm -hmm. of Zach and Olivia, and then the deadly forces that are trying to capture and misuse her power. Um, I mean, you've set up this really cool uh, dynamic that's going on. So look are there any going to be any religious sort of connotations to her power? I mean, that seems, I mean, it seems kind of obvious that somebody here would be seen as the second coming. Well, and see, that's another whole plot line. Uh, it, there's a reason that I named her divinity <laughs> is that we, it's never going to be revealed exactly where her powers came from. I'm going to leave that open to interpretation so that anybody can put their own spin on it. <laughs> but we know it comes from a higher power, whether okay. that be your God, my God, somebody else's God is responsible. I'm never going to answer that question mm -hmm. because I want this to be everybody's interpretation of, of uh, where her divine powers come from. I think that's wise, Barb, because, uh, uh, you know, when you explain things too much, a la Highlander 2, you know, mm -hmm. it just doesn't quite keep it mysterious, you know, mm -hmm. keep it. You know, midi-chlorians to explain the force. Uh, you know, keep it keep it mysterious. It's that that allows more participation, in my opinion, for the viewer and the reader. Everybody gets the midi-chlorian thing 
wrong. Everybody, I always, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I always get that because I remember a lot of people keep saying the Metachlorians create the Force. That's no. never what they said in the movie. No, All they said not. was that it allows them to communicate yes. with the Force. And I see, and I'm not saying you, but I've seen so many people like the Metachlorians made the Force. I'm like you're, you're not listening nope. to what he said. It said it just allows them to communicate with the Force. The Force is still the Force. They're the things that let you talk to them. And that, to me, when I heard that, I'm like, okay. That didn't yeah, bother me too much. It adds a little more of a science fiction element to an otherwise yeah. mystical power. And that's a taste thing. And I, I, I was cool with that. It's kind of like saying, you know, if you're O-positive blood type, you can wield this extrasensory perception a little better. Or than something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So. Uh, again, adding a technical aspect to a, a mystical power, which is cool. I mean, it's just, again, it's a taste thing. Like uh, a lot of people like the fact that in the Blade uh, continuity, uh, you know, silver works against vampires and sunlight right, works a, against vampires, not for sacred reasons, but for scientific reasons, right? And that's just another it's a chemical the reaction. Purity of the chemical. Did right. you ever think that? Now, maybe I'm wrong. Did you ever think, strangely enough, that silver was always used against evil because silver is the whitest and bluest of the metals, and usually white and blue is considered a color of divinity? My uh, goodness, I, no. I don't know if there's anything to that, but I've always been curious because it, it, it could it just also just be the color of the metal that's part of it. I don't know. I don't know about the color. I do have my own explanation, which, yeah, again, perfect segue for my book. I'm in the process of writing my series called Silver Blade. It takes place in the Victorian England in 1892. And we are in the time period where you have characters like Alan Quartermain and Abraham Van Helsing and Dracula, although Dracula doesn't make an appearance, certainly not in the in the first uh, series. But what I'm going to do with this story is bring different personalities together from literature, but with characters I've created. And I'm going to address two things primarily uh, while we're having fun with the action adventure and the sword play and the fighting and the shootouts and all that. I'm going to address, number one, why silver works against evil, why it always has. It's an explanation that I don't think has ever been used, so I'm not going to give that away till the book comes out. Even the six-page Christmas special that will come out before the series is not going to reveal that. So that, that will come, but it won't be, won't be anytime soon. The second uh, issue I want to I take on is basically the bigger question. So I'm using more of a foundational philosophical platform like we were talking earlier, Aaron, and that is why... In, in this particular story, you know, it's, it's Christian-based. So in that perspective, we have an order of holy knights versus an evil order that worship the golden calf. Okay, so why in this environment, why does God let bad things happen to good people? And I have my own personal uh, opinion about why that happens. And part of it's scriptural. Part of it is just the way I've worked it out in my own head. And just to summarize it without getting too deep into it, it's to do multiple things. First of all, in the broad sense, it's the result of free will. We're not that's, robots, right? Free will. We can do what we want. And the price of free will means that 
some people are going to choose the darkness over the light and bad things will come of that. The way I believe that redemption is always available and a salvation is always available, not just for the good people, but even for the people who choose evil, they have the opportunity up until the very end to repent and redeem themselves. So I'm going to work that in that in as well. But basically the price of, of free will is that there's evil in the world. There's darkness in the world, but there's also beauty in the world. And in my particular perspective in Silverblade, um, there's more beauty in the world than evil, even though sometimes it seems that uh, evil holds sway um, and that it's only an illusion that there's more darkness than light. And if we choose light, we become more connected to the light. So therefore we tend to see light more than darkness. Right. So I'm going to play along those lines, but here's an aspect I don't think has been done either. And that is that I use the force in star Wars as a metaphor for this. Okay. But right. in my storyline, it's grace versus hate, right? So the power okay. of the darkness is driven by hate. The power of the light is driven by grace. Well, grace is something where you have the virtue of forgiveness and patience and um, all these, these, these virtues, love, obviously, and then the different, the different aspects of love. Um, these are difficult to explain if you don't use the broad, iconic character types that I'm using. So that brings me to how the characters work in their internal and external conflict. We have uh, our main character, Elizabeth Dane, um, who is um, a very intelligent and uh, high-spirited, as they would call her in Victorian times, woman who does not know her proper place, you know, in those days. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, she, uh, she's the daughter of uh, a very wealthy, globe-trotting adventurer who was best friends with Alan Quartermain. And he ran off and left her to sort of raise herself with... Uh, with nannies and so forth. And she wanted so much to be like him and admired him and loved him. And when he never came home from an adventure, she has this sort of love hate relationship for the whole adventurer world. And she really doesn't like Alan Quartermain very much. She really doesn't. She really blames him for dragging her dad off across the world to chase after relics and, and adventure and so on. And, but at the same time, she wants to be like that. So she makes her living tutoring wealthy children. Um, but it also gives her an excuse to travel and to study. And, uh, she loves archeology. span She's the one who inadvertently discovers the silver blade, which is a Templar sword, um, from the middle ages. And once she starts to study it, she realizes it has some sort of power that she's not encountered before. Her, all, her life also gets in danger because she starts being hunted and her, her house gets broken into. She's threatened. So reluctantly, she decides, okay, I've got to find out more about this. And um, my dad's best friend, Alan Quartermain, as much as I loathe him, um, he may be helpful with some information. So she goes to Quartermain and the Order of Sacred Silver um, that Quartermain is a member of to find out what in the world is is all about this sword and why is it so important to this 
underworld? Why do they want it so bad other than its monetary value? And why does it affect her like it does? Because it, it casts a sort of grace light on her in a way where she feels comforted and yet at the same time like she should do good things with it. You know, and my two, my two driving mottos for the Order of Sacred Silver is defend innocence, destroy evil, right? So, you know, the typical yeah. sort of sacred knight uh, credo. So anyway, that's her. Her internal conflict really is, I don't really want to join this secret brandy and cigars club that my daddy was a member of that got him probably killed. He never came home. Uh, and these guys are just a bunch of pompous jerks, really. But at the same time, I'm fascinated by what they're fascinated by. And right. I'll, I'll show them that I can be better than they are because I can be smarter than they are about what they do and not be bumbling and not be misogynist and not be greedy and not be dumb, basically. And uh, she's, she's a brilliant character. She's a brilliant character. And really, she's smarter than most of the, the other characters. Her hubris is in a way her flaw and also she's very much resistant to forgiveness she's very angry Uh, and that's that's her flaw uh she can't forgive her dad she can't forgive um, quartermain quartermain uh does the sword affect other people the same as it affects her or does it just affect her that way ah it depends on not midi chlorians it depends (laughs) on (laughs) it depends on your ability to receive and channel grace, right? How open you are to that. Um, She is very open to that naturally um, because she's a virtuous person by nature. Um, She's the type that rescues the hurt dog when the mean old man's beating the dog. You know, she's the type that goes into the most dangerous neighborhoods in London on Christmas Eve and gives food to the poor, you know, regardless of, of the danger to her and so on. And that's, that's how we're introduced to her. And my Christmas special is she's taking food to uh, a single woman who uh, is broke and living in the worst part of Whitechapel uh, during the oh, time okay. of, you know, uh, Jack, like the Ripper. Jack the Ripper, stuff like that. So anyway, okay. So then that brings us to, uh, let's talk about Sam, Sam Blake, um, he is an adventurer. He's a former U.S. cavalry officer. Um, he's, he served when he was uh, much younger in the uh, Civil War. Um, and um, he's not proud of a lot of the things he did uh, as a U.S. cavalry officer in the late uh, 19th century. Um, but he is after whoever uh, murdered his wife and kidnapped his daughter. And he has tracked them to England. And we're introduced to him uh, in a fencing contest with a pompous English fencing champion. And we see very quickly that he's charming and he's an excellent swordsman. And he is uh, just predominantly an all-American guy. You know, he's right. dashing and kind of brash. And he's he knows he's good. And uh, Like you, he's right, Dean? Healthy. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, I'm not Sam Blake. We won't, we won't go there. But uh, there's, there's self-insert. One interesting thing I I, uh, I wanted to add to Sam's character is that um, uh, he was trained by Zora. And oh, that's kind of cool. And we're gonna see some flashbacks in the series 
something that Zorro, uh, Don Diego de la Vega actually taught Sam was that um, Sam loses his temper when he fences. He's an excellent swordsman, but when he gets cornered, he gets frustrated and um, gets breathless about it, gets angry, loses his temper. And uh, Zorro has to chide him and remember and, and let him say, look, if you lose your temper, you lose. You have to get your anger under control. And that helps Sam later in the series understand how to channel grace, but also to understand how to win without hate and anger consuming him, right? So there's a little bit of the echo and tribute to Luke in episode six, right? With yeah, you know, the vengeance versus mercy, uh, that kind of thing. Um, Sam may or may not make, make that same choice. But the point being that we, we're going to come to understand that uh, Sam is driven mostly by vengeance. He doesn't really believe in God or any sort of divine power because he's seen too much death and too much injustice done uh, in the name of, of religion and, and what's right. So he's, he's in the stage of sort of pure materialism. Um, and agnostic. Yes. And through his contact with Quartermain and the Order of Sacred Silver, uh, he will come to understand that there's something out there larger than he is. And the barrier between him and the ability to channel this divine power is his own uh, love of vengeance right now. He's consumed by, by vengeance. And um, we're gonna, he's going to learn that lesson. So there's his internal conflict. His external conflict is, of course, the, uh, the Golden Calf Society. Now, the Golden Calf Society is my version of the Hellfire Club, which was, you know, uh, historical and also way overused in the uh, Marvel yeah. Universe. So I didn't want to do the same thing that Marvel did. Um, but the Golden Calf Society are these wicked, wealthy, corrupt politicians and uh, leaders in Victorian England who um, take advantage of children and uh, of the poor and basically use them as sexual toys and exploit them and then cast them aside. And uh, so the villains, again, are, are a common theme today, unfortunately, is the human trafficking problem and which, you know, it's basically modern slavery. And so I want to I want to sort of touch on that in the Victorian era that you had the extremely wealthy and extremely poor, and um, the the order runs an orphanage um, where they address that and use their wealth to help uh, orphans, but also to fight this uh, underworld evil secret society. So that's you know it's it's got a little mix of everything in there, um, but that's basically it. So it's you know they're not really superheroes; they're more like knights channeling divine power when they can. Um, but again, you'll find out about silver. You'll find out about the golden calf. You'll also find out that, uh, not only did, uh, well, angels have swords, right? So when Lucifer fell, he also had a sword. So oh. that's going to also come into play in the storyline. So we're going to bring in, you know, a lot of different, 
mythological and, and, and scriptural references and sort of blend it all together. But you're going to have fun meeting some literary characters you're familiar with, not just Alan Quartermain, but uh, Abraham Van Helsing and uh, the laboratory of Dr. Frankenstein. Now, Victor's no longer around because this is way after his time, but uh, the bad guys do spend some time experimenting in the remnants of, of Victor's lab. Uh, so you're going you're gonna to see a little bit of that. And uh, you're also going to see some of Victor's failed experiments make their appearance in the story as well. So just oh, that's kind of cool. When you say the golden calf, all I can see is is the scene in uh, the Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston looking down on the. They're all dancing around <laughs> this golden calf. Yep, yep. That's pretty much. In fact, I'm glad you brought that up. That's actually the the uh, artistic reference I used to to draw. Oh, no. If you, yes, if you if you look at the picture that's up now on the stream, and you look at the bottom bottom part of the drawing, that is the golden half heavily in, golden calf. Heavily uh, yeah, yeah, okay, so that the makes sculpture sense. from the Ten Commandments, right? Because I figured, hey, you know, it's pop culture references. You that's know, why right. not? You know, that's go for right. it. So, uh, you may may or may not actually see the that golden calf in the uh, in the series as well. So, um, just a lot of a lot of fun things that. Uh, now, my influences for the story are a mix. There are things that you could probably guess, things like Star Wars and, and that sort of thing, but also um, uh, the Wild Wild West. I don't know if you guys are old enough yeah. to remember the Wild Wild oh, West. Oh, yeah, yeah. God, yes. I swear to God, you could <laughs> bounce a quarter off of Robert Conrad's ass. There you go. See, well, I grew up with uh, just, Robert just Conrad. Just a quarter? No pennies or anything? No <laughs> dimes? No, just a quarter, he said. She's throwing like, get, like a roll of the quarters out his butt. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so as a kid, you know, uh, basically just admiring those two guys, you know, Jim and Artie and their adventures and a sort of, that was steampunk before there was steampunk, you know, yep. and, and it, yeah. was, it was fun. We, we have a guest. I, I would be remiss in not uh, hey welcoming... Roberta Conroy, Robbie, how are you? Please introduce Hi. yourself to everyone. Thank you so much. Oh, for good morning us. or good afternoon or whatever it is today. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm Roby Conroy. I am um, just hopping on to say hi, and you know it's been it's been a while since you've had your your group together. I miss you, Barb. Good Thank to see you. you. Yeah, yeah. I've having a lot going on in my life this last year, but things are starting to slow down. So you'll be seeing more of me. Great. It's good to see you. What are you working on for Silverline, Robbie? Catch everybody up on what you're working on. So I'm hopping back on to Cat and Mouse. Awesome. Yeah. Uh-huh. Good to new like this. This is coming up. That's really... Oh, yeah. I can... There you go. Oh, my God. I love it. Awesome. Wow. Two-page spread. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Two-page spread. And and tell everybody you're the colorist, correct? Yeah. So I am coloring that issue that she's working on right now. Fantastic. And um, I think there are two books in the works at the moment. Yeah, there is. There's well, now, still. I would be. It, she has like I... the best box of crayons too. I've seen Roby's oh, yeah? crayons. <laughs> They're awesome. So, what do you uh, what what uh, what do you like to use as far as technology? And then tell us uh, some of your inspirations because we we want to talk about that. I'm sure people want to know. I'm always trying to think about my inspirations, and and the the biggest influence I I think I I always point out to 
was when I was really young and I had an awful lot of, of art influenced by my sci-fi books from 60s and oh, yeah, yeah ma mainly 60s um, book covers. So oh. I think that started me in kind of a certain style, just really, and it's color palette. It's a, you know, I just liked fantasy art. Oh, and yeah. so that, that was my beginning. I'm, I'm with you there. I, I grew up uh, wanting to paint like Frazetta and uh, yeah. uh, all the fantasy artists from that era. But uh, also, do you remember how wonderful uh, movie posters were in those days? Yes. Yes. And how beautifully illustrated the movie poster was and how uh, you, you, you got the feel of the movie and a tease for the content without it giving everything away. Yes. You know, whenever I see a movie poster that isn't like a photo compilation, they actually took the time to hire an artist. I always think there's something better about that movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always, I always use the Harry Potter series as a timeline for the demise of the illustrated poster, because that that Harry Potter and, and the Sorcerer's mm. Stone number one is painted, and then by the time we get to two and three, we're using Photoshop. And I'm like, come on, guys! But I actually yeah. saw Drew Struzan's painting. I have his book, and Drew Struzan, who did the the first one, the painting for uh, for Chamber of Secrets is beautiful. I wish they'd gone with that. It's absolutely oh, wow. gorgeous, and I wish I wish they still did that. Yeah. You know, Another one of my heroes as a boy, shocker, was uh, James Bond. So those posters were beautiful. That's really, yeah, understandably. You know, that stuff is really interesting. Really interesting. How how they would the the, the movie collage style of illustration still influences me. So when I do a cover, I've had people tell me, you know, it reminds me of the you know seventies and eighties movie posters. I'm like. Well, yeah, you know, so, so <laughs> definitely you, an inspiration there. Definitely. But there was a lot of thought that went into that. Absolutely. And I think it's it's a different kind of a response they're looking for now. I think so too. Um I love I absolutely love uh people like Bob Peake. You guys remember the uh poster for uh Star Trek the Motion Picture mm -hmm. and I think he even mm -hmm. did uh, Wrath of Khan too, but you know, oh, yeah. he, could, he could just make three faces of the major characters and you wanted to see the movie just because of his illustration. But then you realize, wait, this is just three faces I'm looking at and a spaceship behind them. And he made it compelling. And and part of that, you know, obviously composition, color choice, uh, mm -hmm. you know, talent and skill of capturing the, the, the character and the nature of the, of the characters and likeness, the ability to capture likeness. Uh, I'm in awe of that skill. It's pretty... It's amazing. amazing yes, it? It, is. it really, really is. But you know, uh, you were you were talking about book covers, and this wasn't in the '60s, but more in the '70s and '80s. But you remember Michael Whalen? Of course, mm -hmm. yeah. of course, yeah, yeah absolutely. Loved, I love, love his... I love him so much. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, I have I have a couple of his uh, posters, I... book covers, uh, in my studio here. Mm -hmm. No, I, I I think that the ability to summarize and create an iconic image for a two or three hour film um, in an illustration is a singular talent. And, uh, you know, my hat's off to people who can, who can pull that off and pull that off well. And I, I'm, on, I'm, I'm on your team in terms of bring that back. Please bring it back. You can, you can do, you know, 
go ahead and do the photo collage and Photoshop of the actors and whatever. That's fine. But then also hire an artist and, you know, I'll, I'll buy the poster, you know, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. You know, like Dune, for instance, have you guys seen some of the God, yeah. promotional oh, stuff for Dune and how yes, awesome it looks? So good. It looks awesome. Yeah. I want to do a whole little pop culture segment in the future on, on Dune, yeah. but I want to get too off track. I want to stay on what we're talking about. So, what um, we're talking about? Well, yeah, yeah you, really. you were, we're talking, talking influences. Season 70 stuff. No, we're doing yeah. <laughs> internal and external also, also, 80s stuff, when um, the movie Alien came out, oh, I had a big Geiger push, and that really did a lot. Yeah. Of Was that not Just cool? amazing. Just, I mean, literally, that poster, I remember I was in the theater and it was just this egg with a green light burning <laughs> out of the broken crack on the egg. You wanted to see that movie. was, you know, alien in space. No one can hear you scream. Yeah, that was, like, that was I mean, perfect. That tells you everything. Brilliant. That tells you everything. And I was just like, this is such a perfect. It, and of course, it redefined, you know, sci-fi horror, certainly. But even, yeah. even the way people view horror, it also made me a lifelong Ridley Scott fan. And forever... For sure influenced my aesthetic and my art. Everyone who has to ink me or color me just goes, oh, because all I, I, I put rain, ashes, flames, snow, mm -hmm. sleet. Yes, he does. Dust. Oh, yeah. Ask all these people who've worked over my, they're like, oh my God, Dean's can do more raindrops. Stop it. Stop with the ash. <laughs> Stop with the rain. Stop, you know, but I, but I got that from Ridley Scott and, and very much so from Alien and, and to a lesser extent Blade Runner, but, but both, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But um, back to the conflict and, and uh, character creation. When, when you guys set out to create a character, do you intentionally say, okay, I want this character to have this conflict or whatever? Or does it organically develop as the character develops? Aaron, you go first. Like, did you set out ahead of time to fulfill, you know, okay, this is going to be my conflicted character. Or this is going to be my, or did it just come to life as you were creating? <laughs> Everything's. Are you there? I'm sorry. I think, I think you hiccuped a little bit. Say that again, Aaron. Aaron. I think we have a little, uh, maybe internet hiccup, internet hiccup, right? Yeah. There. I had one earlier. Yeah. What about you, Barb? How, how about you? When you take mine, on a character? Came, mine came about organically. I had this general concept storyline and, um, uh, the plot and everything like that. But I, I like to be as realistic as possible. I'm just super logical like that. And if you're going to, if you're going to write a character, you're going to have to have motivations and how would he act? Uh, you have to get into their heads. And so along with that comes their issues because you have to know why they're going to act the way they act and why they say the things they're going to say. Um, so for me, it comes organically. I don't set out ahead of time to say, I want this guy to have this conflict. <laughs> right. You know, right. Uh, I, I know who he is, and as I develop the character, then his conflicts come naturally. Okay, now I'm back. Welcome um, back, Aaron. Yeah, apparently, all I had to do was just um, refresh it, I guess. Yeah. 
So I, um, the, I, the, I, I really think Dean's doing this. I think. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Dean's just kicking me out. He's like, and we're done looking at his face <laughs> for the night. Really click. Um, I yeah, click. To, uh, well, okay. That. So you can uh, go ahead and share with us. Like, is it organic for you or is it something you, well, I've got to have this type of character, this archetype and this archetype. You mean you click off boxes? Or, or do you, Aaron, when, when you were creating the godlings, for example, um, can you hear me guys or I'm not sure. I think Aaron, he, are you there now? There I think he, he was there. I think he lost it again. Yeah, I think, I think we lost right. it again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, us, yeah, you weren't done with your description of our. Yeah, you guys keep freezing on me. All right. What's wrong with this? I was Hold just going to, I was just going to finish up with saying that the worst thing that you can uh, accomplish is coming up with a one-dimensional character. Absolutely right. Sure. Because there are no one-dimensional people. Even the villains are not one-dimensional. Correct. Everybody Correct. has got. Um, a reason for the things that they do and they have their own fears and their own ambitions. So even the bad guys can't be, I'm going to take over the world. Why? Well, because I want to take over the world. But why do you want to take over the world? Because I want to take over the world. You know? Right. 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 It's, it's fascinating too, that uh, the most interesting villains are usually the ones where in some level you, you sympathize with their motivation in, in a little bit of a way, you know, you, you sort of get it. You're like, okay, you, you went over the edge with this, you're hurting people, you're being cruel, but you know, I get, I get what your, what your position is, but you got to stop. And those, those villains are the ones that are usually the most compelling and fun to watch. There he is again. Is he back for good? Can you hear us? Ground control to major Humphreys. Well, all, in all the villains' minds, what they're doing makes total sense to them. Yes. Yes. And the decision whether uh, people getting hurt yeah. is collateral damage. It keeps every, once I get into the room, everything starts, you're all slowing down again. Oh, boy. Yeah. Every, it immediately starts slowing down. So hey, I'm trying to ask. Uh, are you on Chrome? You try Carlos, quitting some things? What's going on? Are you on Chrome? Well, we'll give uh, we'll give Aaron a chance to reset. Um, we're coming up on the uh, the end of the first hour, so what I want to do is I want to thank our sponsors again, uh, Daytona Beach Comic Convention coming up on September eighteenth and nineteenth, and I'd also like to again thank our our producer Carlos for helping to bring up these images as we talk about them and discuss them. Um, if we get Aaron back and he's stable. Um, okay, I think I'm just stable. Aaron has never yeah. been stable. He's never been no, stable never. in one way. But can you hear me now? Way, or you, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Take a stab at the uh, at the uh, question about creating characters. Do you calculate them, or do they come to life as you're creating them? Uh, they kind of come to life. Mm, that's a good one. They're kind of calculated. I know I'm very plot driven when I okay. write my stories. So my characters are very much servicing a plot. Um, and then the characters, I think, kind of grow a little bit. The, the main character, uh, Boomer, is based off me. So that's an easy... Self-insert, self-insert. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but it's... Uh, the other ones are... 
they kind of grow. I think over time I've dealt with these. I know them enough that I know what they would do. Um, right. I think it's a little bit of both. But yeah, I'm very plot driven. So characters use a service, a message, or an idea I'm trying to get across. Uh, not too character driven in my story. Okay. Okay. What about uh, there's there's something called Deadluck. Can you tell us about Deadluck? Are you there? Aaron? Aaron? Get Brent's opinion quick before he dies. Mm, yes. <laughs> Are you back? Yeah, you I'm still here. Now? Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I know. Uh, I think we're. Yeah, can you now. hear me now? Okay. I can hear you. I can okay. Dead Luck was a story that. So that was. I spoke, I'm thinking about coming. Am I slowing down? Yes. No. Okay. Um, and the Dead Luck was a book that I used to uh, write, like a kid's book that was basically like an adult story. So I wanted to mix genres. Okay. So the book reads like a kid's book, but it's about a cowboy that loses his soul in a poker game and has to go get it back. Uh, He's basically the Al Bundy of the old west <laughs> that's how i vision him because al bundy's my hero so he's just kind of a guy that basically has like the worst luck happened to him at all i ha- have another story that i'm writing him that i like to come back to where he ends up going to like basically a whorehouse in okay. the old west and they all turn out to be werewolves I mean, he's nice. just like, that's why it's called dead luck. Like, he just has, like, naturally bad luck, and all this oh, wow. stuff happens to him. But he's just, like, the most, I don't care, smokes, drinks, just, he's just a typical dude. He's just your Al Bundy and all this stuff. So he's a straight man. I play a lot of stuff off him as a straight man I sort see. of character. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So he's, he's totally dead. He's just, like, the comedic version of of this whole thing, to me at least. Right, and his character—he was a Civil War veteran. That's why he wears that coat. That was a sort uh-huh. of Civil War coat. I nice, think. nice. Yeah, Civil War reference uh, in your stuff too. Very cool. Well, we yeah. have we have a guest that's that's arrived here, a late arrival. We're always happy to have him, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Brent Larson. Brent Larson. Brent, introduce yourself to the uh, to the crowd here, and, and talk to us a little bit about what you're working on for Silverline. <laughs> everybody everybody yeah. i'm even a, i'm even yeah. a guest host here brent i just you know i do what the powers that be ask me to do and can you guest up sure so yeah, yeah all guests here all guests i think i've been on every stream this week <laughs> And, and I'm lucky because we could have all been talking about the same subject, and by tonight it would have been like, ah, I have no more to say about it, but it's been different subjects every night. So they, Yeah, it's been really fun. It's been fun. So, Brent, tell everybody uh, tell everybody what, uh, what you do for Silverline and what you're currently working on. which um, I'm really looking forward to sharing. And actually, I just got Lewis going on issue uh, 
number one of the new Kalis arc, nice. uh, which is exciting. And uh, yeah, we got this thing planned out for quite a while. So awesome. It's going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, mm. Well, um, you've joined us at the moment in the show when we're going to start talking about our pop culture material. So tonight to sort of dovetail with what we're talking about, about internal and external conflict and creating characters. I wanted to touch base on black widow and also on the Loki TV series. So, um, I don't know if Brent, did you get a chance to see either one of those? I saw both. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Uh, Robbie, what about you? Did you get to see either? I saw Loki and uh, I still have yet to see Black Widow. Okay. We'll make sure uh, this discussion will remain a spoiler free. Uh, We'll be talking. I I don't mind if you spoil it. It's not going to kill me. (laughs) I have enough opinionated friends and what have you. So that's fine. (laughs) Well, we'll start. What we'll do for fun then is we'll start with Loki. Uh, the TV series um, about the god of mischief in the Asgardian uh, pantheon. And um, I thought this was pretty brilliant in terms of a deconstruction, reconstruction of Loki's psyche in terms of taking away his powers and sitting him down and really putting him under the microscope, uh, especially in the first uh, episode and having him explain to us, what do you want? Why do you do what you do? Do you enjoy hurting people and watching them suffer and why? And Loki's responses to all this from outrage to how dare you you know, treat me this way, I'm a god, to finally just breaking down and talking about those issues. Um, for uh, let's start with you, Robbie. You've seen the show. What did you think of that yeah. first episode and how how Loki was was treated and how he responded? Well, I wasn't expecting that treatment of him. I guess it really did feel like it. It just put a spotlight on him and his thoughts in a way I've never handled uh, contemplating. So for me, I, I thought it was more of a character study than I expected. I, I it was slower in, in that way too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It really was. Uh, it was a shock to see uh, a typically a character typically portrayed as, you know, in control and outsmarting everyone in the room to sort of just completely trapped and uh, what he does in that situation. Uh, and the well, writing is, is, Nice. It's brilliant. The world building there was really unique, though. I think that's what helped me enjoy it a lot more, is yes. trying to imagine what is this place they just, you know, yes. took. We're, we're talking they about took the so much. Yeah, they took so much of his power away from him, and it just was a really interesting direction. I thought so, too. We're, for those who, who may have not seen it, Loki is captured by the Time Variance Authority, the TVA. And uh, these people are basically, it's a bureaucracy um, that controls the sacred time stream and apprehends offenders, they call variants, who take action to break 
the sacred time stream and cause branches to branch off and ultimately bring chaos and the destruction of reality uh, by clashing timelines or something similar to that. It's it's pretty pretty heady stuff, but it's fun to watch Loki struggle as he's captured. And they really, I mean, if you guys, I'd love to hear your take on, on this. I'm going to just throw it out there and let everybody have a take. They actually have, uh, Owen Wilson plays um, uh, an agent called Mobius, uh, and he and Loki have face-to-face conversations um, that I haven't really seen done in the MCU where they are actually addressing philosophical questions such as the nature of free will versus predestination. Uh, And the idea in the Marvel U set up in this storyline is that there are um, three godlike beings who are the timekeepers and um, everything has to go according to their decision of what is appropriate for the time stream. Otherwise you're canceled, uh, you're destroyed uh, or you're realigned uh, to the proper time stream. And so Loki is arguing free will and Owen Wilson's character is arguing the opposite. And it's kind of interesting. Um, Brent, I'd love to get your take on this. I'm just going to throw it out, out to you. I know you're into this heady stuff, so go for it. Uh, just that question, huh? Okay. Yeah, whatever you want to talk about with, with the Loki uh, series. Um, that was good. You know, I think this is my non-cerebral answer, which is to say I haven't chewed on it very hard. Okay. Um, the show very deftly poses the question and then doesn't bother to answer. Right. Um, in fact, um, to tell you the truth, um, I work uh, with a filmmaking group that does a lot of nonprofit kind of videos, uh, films with messages. One thing we learned from uh, the beginning was anytime we noticed a movie of any kind, two hours, two minutes, that really tries to answer a question, it fails miserably because the audience is thinking, you're just trying to tell me what you think and or push it on me. So the nice thing about the show is they have Loki with the uh, free will, free will. We have Owen Wilson, the Mobius character, going, no, it's all scripted. And the answer is, maybe both and or let's do some adventuring and they kind of let the audience just kind of mull over it themselves and then in the last episode especially when things start to fracture you're never actually still feeling like they ever came down on one side or the other they are like you know what you guys you know this is a question of this is a question that's stumped humanity for Ever since there's been a humanity, how are the world ever going to answer it in an episode of a Disney Plus show? Answer. <laughs> Let's not try. So I appreciated that about them. So. I agree. It's it's best uh, when when tackling heady questions. Uh, maybe perhaps you can suggest possible explanations and then let the viewer decide for themselves. Uh, that makes yeah. for a much more engaging uh, interaction. Um, Aaron, have you seen it? Loki? No. Yes. No. You haven't seen Loki. Barb, have you seen Loki? I have seen uh, I've seen Black Widow and I've seen two episodes of Loki. And um, as you said, uh, you're you're given an insight into him. However, 
I have to say that they, they've been setting uh, Loki up as the perfect trope of an anti-hero in every single movie that he has appeared in. Going back to the original Avengers movie, because, I mean, he did such a lousy job of trying to take over the world. I mean, think about it. He managed to screw everything up, leaving a back door into the machine on top of the Stark building. He opened up a tiny little hole for all of his forces to come through. Um, he was actually being controlled by Thanos, but he managed to work around the edges of that control to completely uh, uh, sabotage all of his own plans. So you could see right then, he became very sympathetic, especially after the Hulk had beat him into a rag doll. And he's laying there and he says, you know, I'd like to take that drink now. And then in every successive movie, you see all of these very human uh, qualities, these little boy qualities to him when he's trying to be evil. So he, Marvel themselves, have, has set him up to be a sympathetic anti-hero. So when the beginning of, of uh, Loki starts, you see his normal braggadocio and arrogance and stuff like that. But you can also see he's scared. Um, and then when he sees what happens to Asgard uh, in that episode, the first the first episode. Yes. Um, you see that really all along he's he's always been insecure and fearful. So in that respect. I wasn't all that surprised when he broke down and, and started discussing his innermost thoughts to, to Mobius. Because Mo, Mobius seems uh, to be pretty intuitive, you know. I thought so as well. Now, when you when you see a, a character that we're all pretty familiar with um, written that way, how does that inform you as you're creating your villains? Because what I try to do is... I. You know, I'm not a professional writer, really. I mean, I'm learning to write. So I'm trying to give everybody that three-dimensional, realistic foundation. So when you see that in Loki, did that inform you? Or do you see that and go, I want my villains to have that sort of humanity and vulnerability as well? Or did that, that affect you at all? Way too late. I already had my, my book written and stuff like that right. by the time that came along. But um, like I stated, I think he's the antithesis of, of most villains because he's coming into it back asswards. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he started out as a loving son and uh, always being picked on and bullied and made fun of for his skills and then backed into villainism. Um, so, and we saw that as we progressed right through the MCU movie. So I don't think it came as a shock to anyone, mm -hmm. you know? So I wasn't like, oh yeah, I have to make my villain look like Loki. I'm like, well, that was now so not a surprise. Mm -hmm. I'd mm -hmm. already figured that out five movies ago. <laughs> Would you say his doorway into villainy is, is envy? Yes. Is envy? Okay. Yes. Envy and in insecurity. He has to feel like he's somebody because he's uh, he's been put down so often from uh, Thor's buddies and 
being told that he's second best to Thor all of his life. And I think a lot of it is resentment and to prove himself. I'm going to prove that I'm just as good as everybody, you know, everybody else. So it's envy and resentment mm -hmm. that has so, made him a villain. Yeah, I think I think that that works as, as a motivation for him. And it would work as a motivation for any villain, you know, those of us who are writing. Um, what about you, Aaron? You have you, Do you have uh, villains that are driven by those forces, envy, insecurity? Um, my villain and <laughs> my villains in my story, I don't technically write villains per se, because if you technically, especially if you look at godlings, my main character is the villain. Okay. Okay. He, uh, so reverse, he ends up, the, there's a villain at the end that comes back to get revenge on my character because of something he did. Okay. And Fair he's enough. totally justified to do that. So, <laughs> so it's kind of one of those things where, um, I, I technically like a lot of shows where there's like good, bad, like a villain and a hero. Those sometimes kind of bore me. They're not very engaging to me personally. I don't mind them, um, but I like something like I was really a big fan of the Matrix trilogy because mm -hmm. it, they weren't like technically villains that are trying to break this sort of pattern. And uh, so it's much more interesting. Uh, the movie Akira is, is yeah. very interesting, where the mm -hmm. main protagonist is like is the villain basically. Uh, I like shows that kind of study or do character studies on what people would happen if they got this power or did that and that. Sure. Uh, that's why I like the, the, the Zack Snyder when he did Superman uh, because, you know, it's like, what if you were a god? I mean, how would the world treat you realistically? And I thought that was much more fascinating than he's just like this Boy Scout, which I'm like, so this is why like I like a lot of stuff around Star Wars, but like the Star Wars storytelling doesn't really do much for me right? Um, because it's like there's, there's evil and there's good and it's it's really hard for me to sit there and go like, well, I've never met anyone who's just evil because I'm evil. Right. I'm right. just evil. I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And no one is completely altruistically good. Right. So I think it's just more like, like you know, the conflict or like conflict of interest, I think, is more mm -hmm. invigorating than this person who's like, I must be evil 24 hours a day and everything I do. Like, he's just like, like he's going out kicking puppies and pushing kids down because he's just evil. And it's just like, okay, that doesn't. It doesn't do anything for me. I know a lot of people really like this. Uh, this is sometimes why a lot of the American style movies, blockbusters, kind of. I mean, they're cool spectacles, but there's not much really to grab onto except the, they're one dimensional. The very one dimensional. It's just, yeah. it's just it's the same story told again and again and again, and you can sure. see it coming a thousand miles away. So it just it gets personally boring to me. Sure. So I don't write that into my stories, um, but I know a lot of people really like that because it's like comfort food. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of different motivations for somebody to be evil. They're not evil right. in their own minds. There's yeah. pride. There's uh, hurt. There's greed. There's fear. And there's love. All of that stuff can make people right. evil. Do mm -hmm. evil things for, for any of those reasons. You know? Yeah. And I You know, strangely enough, like... Ideology is another one. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, like, if there's a good reason why somebody, but usually I just, I like, if there's a villain, I try to write them as they're not evil in their own head. They're just conflict of interest. Right. You could argue that Conan and Judge Dredd, which are two of my favorite characters, are evil. Yeah, one could make that argument. Sure. 
Sure. Yeah, and that to me is much more interesting than somebody who's like, I I, I do all good all the time. This right. is why it's when every time people break characters because I'm just I don't think one person is one side or the other, and if they are, it's kind of boring. I, to well, me personally, I think, <laughs> so it doesn't think, do anything for me. That what you've touched on and why it's boring is lazy writing because yeah. what I always say is you know Superman can be a fascinating character. You can, if you write him right. If you yeah. write him correctly. Oh, um, you know, he can, he can still, and so, same thing with Captain America. They can be yeah. the Boy Scout who wants to do good all the time, but if you write them correctly, they're conflicted too because they have the human struggle inside just like everyone does. And you can write that. You just have to, you have to be a good and yeah well cap can be interesting if you, if you try he's so white bread most of the time mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. if you write him as a as a man who hates the future but he has no alternative he's stuck here he pines for the past mm -hmm. he pines mm -hmm. for everything he's lost and um my favorite interpretation of captain america is in the ultimate storyline mm -hmm. that, that was uh can't remember the guy who wrote those now um yeah, Millar. Yeah. And uh, just because he was like this military guy that had that, he was very much a man of the 60s dealing with today. So he had like, he was like the epitome of uh, the um, greatest generation stuck today. Right. And not really learning, not really understanding yeah. what had come between the change of generations. Just looking at all these people and like, oh, these kids are crazy. Look at that. He's like an old man stuck in a young body. So I always yeah. found that that's mm -hmm. interesting. That sort of conflict of like, you know. Yeah. I remember one of the stories, I think Ant-Man gets into domestic fight with his wife. And so Captain yeah. America just goes out and beats, you know beast of crap out of him because that's what you would that's what you would do in the 60s you would just be a man and so i just say okay that that is very interesting character because it's not good or bad it's just like right. this is what he would do that's what he would do yeah. that brings me brings me to the next subject i want to come up with is uh the, the black widow movie you know interestingly you have again a character a leading character as you mentioned aaron who yeah um a lot of people would interpret as a villain i mean uh, black widow is a trained assassin right yeah so, I mean, how, how, in what universe is a, a trained assassin a good guy? Well, if in this case she's written many times as trying to make up for things she's done in the past by joining the Avengers and doing what she can to save people instead of killing people. And then yeah. through the course of the story, we see that uh, very much uh, in the tradition of La Femme Nikita, uh, yeah. you know, she's taken as a young person and abused and trained to be a killer by this uh, evil group uh, the, that runs a place called the Red Room. Uh, and it's led by basically a crime lord who is uh, very suspiciously looks like Harvey Weinstein. Did anybody else get that? I got that. <laughs> I, I, the other thing, too, is I never quite understood, does he, maybe should be, does he rent his assassins out? to do jobs do they work as a team like he's got all these assassins, he topples but... regimes and that sort yeah. of thing is that what he does okay yeah, he, topples mm -hmm. he basically rules the world from this satellite by manipulating threatening intimidating i mean he's the godfather with black widow enforcers did it seem a little force that was only woman that he trains i mean i know that's in the whole line with black widow but it seemed like was there something unique about women that he would only train them well, that they're unassuming. 
I didn't that, think yeah. so. Go ahead, Rob. I, I never I never got that. Non-threatening. Non-threatening <laughs> and uh, yeah, non-threatening and unassuming and you and you constantly uh underestimate them. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know this movie had a lot of political overtones like getting into that. So I know there's a lot of stuff there with that that were built right into the movie. I was like, okay. Um, but yeah, I just didn't know if they were saying anything genetically, like or why he only did that, you know. Uh, I'd be kind of curious to see if there was some sort of reasoning. Like maybe they were more susceptible to the brainwashing than the males. Or I, I don't know, just, just something weird. I mean, I just would have been kind of interesting because I'm just like, it really was kind of like you have the, the Brett Rein, Weinstein, you saw that, like you literally have his harem of assassins doing his bidding. And I'm like, Okay. I think it's more political. Uh, yes, much more political. Much more political. They obviously they made a big deal about the the, the brainwashing and then mm-hmm. the antidote to the brainwashing. Those were the yeah. Were the that was weird. Yeah. That was wasn't it? I don't really understand why they went about it like that, unless we were supposed to feel sorry for everybody. Um, I think partly so, that. I, I also think that that they got away from. The core story that was fascinating to me was the dysfunctional family aspect of it. I thought that was yeah. great. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, you they, know, they could have gone into that. Her foster parents and the the crazy dad who ends up being the Red Guardian, you know, who's the anti Captain America, and he's kind of a doofus, played by perfectly by David Balfour. He's just the perfect yeah. character actor to play that. I, I thought it was he was hilarious. Yeah, so, so does he play it like? He's really uh, just lost it with age. Is it yeah. a comedic tone? Very much a, a, a big Lebowski type of he's done. He's he's lost it. He used to be cool and he's out of it. And he's been in prison all these years and just doesn't know his place anymore. And he's acting just kind of, I don't know, obtuse, constantly obtuse. Yeah. And it was it was really fun to, to watch them interact. Brent, share with us uh, what do you think of Black Widow? As far well, talk about it a little bit in terms okay. of the uh, family issues too. I will say um, it's funny they cast David Harbor as the Red Guardian because they uh, did. You guys see some of the ads? They were like the first MCU hero with a dad bod. So <laughs> that was great. Was that, okay, was that what they were talking about? <laughs> Oh, yeah, so um, I was also going to add one interesting thing about uh, movie uh, or people who uh, watch media is um, it's been proven that a young girl in Jeopardy gets more um, sympathy than a young boy in danger. So I'm sure that probably played in if, you know, the, the scene at the beginning yeah. with Natasha and her sister, and in the in the uh, the uh, the big shipping container. Yeah, that's like, dude, that's so wrong. So yeah, um, for whatever reason. So, um, what else? Just say anything about it. Well, um, yeah, the, the the family interaction I thought was great. the family interaction was great. I will actually say. The third act felt the weakest because I think Aaron's right. They didn't really spend a lot of time explaining who is this guy? Why does he have this giant network of just women 
Uh, what's his end game? I still have no idea. If was he, he really just a crime ring. boss? That's lame. So I guess he had the one ring to rule them all. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, he had the magic ring, and there, there was. A, I guess I was. It would. It would always made more sense to me if it was a woman that was training these assassins, because mm. I think she would then. And then the fact that he would like he was like controlling them with like pheromones and stuff, and yeah. I don't know there were there was a, a lot of stuff. I kind of wish, I guess, in the movie, I was kind of hoping for a straight up more Mission Impossible. Like they had this like elaborate mission they had to pull off, for, but they kind of didn't. And and that's again, with, and I'm not picking on Marvel. Most movies just kind of devolve into like, okay, well we have a problem, so okay, everybody fighting stuff blows up, and they roll the credits. And then the last yeah. thirty minutes of every movie is like everyone fighting. Like, I remember when it used to be one fight, now you had, like, what? The Red Guardian fight. There were, I mean, how many different fights are going on? To, like, when they go back to Red Guardian, I'm like, he's still fighting this dude? Like, so, and then the stuff blowing up around them and stuff. And, and uh, but it just, it, I think every single movie ends this way uh, anymore. It's just stuff blowing up and people fighting and stuff. And then, and then you come out going, like, um, I guess I was supposed to care about stuff. I, it's just me. I mean, my friend Tom hasn't seen movies in years, and he won't go see any movies just because that's his biggest gripe at all. It's like, it's just like a lot of stuff happens, a lot of fighting. Am I supposed to care about any of this? Because they're not giving me any reason to care. And I'm like, I, and I totally agree with them. I mean, you know. I think I think you make a good point there that it, it went off the rails trying to be a, a fireworks spectacle when we would have been just as pleased with a lower budget, I think the film yeah, costs yeah. two hundred million. Go lower budget and do more of a Daredevil TV series style thing where that would have been perfect. Go like there's some the elaborate plan they had to pull off in order yeah. to do this, which and they kind of did that in the movie, but they 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 kind of then it just went into fighting and stuff. I'm like, okay. Well, it also went into just impossible spectacle of the exploding satellite in space that's falling apart and the. It became like the end of Moonraker, you know, the James Bond movie. It just got just over the top. So, but think about if they had just focused on the family dysfunction, the actual psychological and physical fallout of being brought up by a foster spy family from Russia, right. and then you join an all-American superhero team, and then how do you? deal with all of that, you know, as a person and then, you know, have a fight and have all the ending action. But why does it always have to be save the world with all that? Just either do a small character can make a, story yeah. or an epic giant save the world. Why do you have to try to blend all those into one? It would have been to me much more effective if like, cause they hinted that her mom betrayed her. Yeah. And then it that, and then then it was good at the end. Oh, it's a big plan, and we switched places. I'm like, okay, well, you completely defeated that point. Yeah, I mean, it would have been a really cool ending if, like, her mom has a gun pointing to her and she's trying to talk her down. And the mom realizes, even though I'm not your real mother, I still have feelings for you. But yeah. it was like, no, we switched masks because we happen to be the exact same size <laughs> right, and body right. build. And so I'm like, okay, like I'm just like yeah. this lady's in like her fifties, and yeah. the guy who's such a crime boss is watching a walk. Like, that's obviously the body. Yeah, I think so. You're right. I think. I mean, you can just look at her hands. You can look at her hands and just be like, "That's not hands of a third. You know. So there was like that was like. I mean, you could have done like this sort of because that was a dysfunctional family, and at the end they were like 
could have like, okay, I'm sorry. And then maybe the mom would have killed the bad guy to sacrifice herself to save her daughter, which showed that she really loved her or whatever. But it just didn't do any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. That's right, one. Or, they, or they could have gone in the direction of uh, we're all victims and we have to be there for each other. Like yeah. the, um, the family dynamic was kind of interesting, except it also felt a little bit um, shoehorned in because mom went off and was doing her experiments. Dad was in jail. And apparently they didn't care about each other at all because they didn't try to break each other out. They didn't try to stay in contact. And suddenly they're all back together, and it's like they're they're almost um, overlaying the whole thing with a funny family dynamic because it's funny. But really, in a story sense, it didn't have enough undergirding to make very much sense. So it seemed to play for laughs, and that was about it. It I think it would have been much more impactful if that who was the taskmaster was her mother. That thought like that was her mother. Uh, like brainwashed, that would have been great, you know. And instead, it's this guy's daughter, yeah. which you see on the screen for like two seconds. But I mean, if she would have tore off her mask and she was trying to talk her out, and she's brainwashed as this taskmaster, and he's been using her mother as a weapon the whole time. I mean, that would have been much more effective than like he's using his own daughter. And I'm like, okay, that's great and horrible, but I don't know the villain as hardly as I know his daughter, so I have no reference. Of, you know, it's tragic, yeah. but there's no emotional connection to. To you know, be much more emotionally connected if it was like Scarlett Johansson's mother. Well, and, so. and to add insult to injury, I think the film underperformed because they it cost two hundred million. They spent a hundred million on the promotion stuff because it was supposed to be released last summer, and then COVID happened and all that. And then they did a simultaneous release in theaters and with Disney Plus and. My gossip sources tell me that Disney lost money on it, and now Scarlett Johansson is suing Disney because she says she was harmed financially because the simultaneous release on streaming and in the theaters um, yielded less uh, income than was expected, and she signed the contract under the understanding that originally they were going to do a delayed release, like it was going to be in theaters for a while and then go streaming. And so there's a lot of politics and a lot of, uh, a lot of yeah, things. I heard that she, uh, mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's wrong. I heard that she got no kickback from the release on demand. She was only supposed to get well. money from the movie release. And then the, oh, that's even worse. No wonder she's mad. Yeah. And then basically when they brought it out on demand and everyone just streamed it, and she got no kickback from it. And right. it's like, wait, right. what? Right. So, yeah. And then, you know, don't feel too sorry for her. I mean, Skojo made 20 mil just to be in the movie, so she's not hurting. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely a precedent where, you right. know, she's the one doing most of the work. She's running yeah. around doing she's stunts the star. or whatever. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whether she's rich or not, I think is, is you know, it's you could always argue that into it. It's just the fact that somebody, you know, signed something in good faith and some other company. Absolutely right. Any, any job, somebody did any did job. Something else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Regardless of it, and so, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I'd like. I remember, you know, in the comics, Black Widow was a traitor. They never did that storyline. I think in every Marvel Avengers story, she ends up betraying them sometime, which I thought would have been kind of an interesting take. Um, but they didn't do that, which I was like, okay. And they never really even used her stinging wristbands that much. No, did they? Yeah, they didn't. They never, they put them on her, but they never did the fact that that was her main. Position. And I was like, really, that's. 
I mean, you can make a man fly around in a suit of armor, but you can't do the wristband thing. I mean, I don't. I mean, I know you got the technology to do this. So, yeah, I never quite. Because I thought, like, wouldn't it have been cool if, like, you had, you know, Hawkeye had all the different arrows? Like, you should have, like, different darts in each one. They could, like, spin around in a wrist. You could do, like, different, like, fire darts or gas. And you could, you could do all sorts of cool. But it's like, no, you get glow sticks and a gun. Like, go right. fight. Pretty much. And yeah. I was like, I, I didn't get the gold sticks. I mean, I, I understand, like, the martial arts, but it's just, you're giving her sticks? I mean, I yeah. just, how threatening right. can she be? Will they glow? I guess that's threatening, right? Um, well, but the cool thing about Black Widow isn't that, that just her tech. I mean, she was the one, if you think about it, you know, in the Avengers, in the Avengers she totally should have been, like, sidelined. You take your little pistols and you go and you pop up a couple of aliens and we'll let the big guys handle stuff. But she's the one who cap vaulted onto the sled that got to the to the uh, what's it called the the thing that was keeping the the hole in space open. All that stuff. I mean, in other words, you don't just send up anybody. You send up the Black Widow. She's that good. She can think yeah. on her feet. Mm-hmm. She's a great fighter. She knows how to roll with stuff. Uh, she was a cool character. I mean, I like yeah. her. I was, su- I was so surprised they never introduced the Wasp at the beginning. Why is she coming? She was one of the original Avengers. Like, why at the very end are they just now introducing through Ant-Man? I think they were saving that for because she's so connected to Ant-Man and yeah. Ant-Wasp. They wanted to keep yeah. those two sort of as their own couple. Uh, I know Disney by you know most of the time just because of Disney have taken out all the negative aspects of the characters. Tony's you know Tony's not an alcoholic, she's not a traitor. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no domestic abuse between Ant Man and the Wasp, you know, which kind of made those characters interesting. But I'm, you know, whatever, yeah. it's the, a different universe, I guess. Take it as you will. It is. Um, it it is different. Um, yeah. And at this point, I'd like to uh, sort of bring the. The discussion to a close. I appreciate everyone joining tonight, and I want to thank you guys for being here, and thank everyone for being here. And we had a great discussion. We want everyone to go check out SilverlineComics.com. Check out all these new creative books. And as we sign out, we always like to say, "Make, make money." And we're out. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Silverline Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We know we ramble sometimes, but we have fun. And after all, isn't that what comics are all about? We hope you'll follow us on all our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, LinkedIn, Reddit, MeWe, Gab, and whatever new thing pops up between now and the time you listen to us. Please like, follow, share, and remember, make mine Silverline.